Today's reading is from Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And the great many of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How's it going? Um, Before we unpack those seven verses, um, I just want to give a quick update to an announcement I gave last week. And um, and just some clarity moving forward as a body, some family business. So if you're new, this... probably won't make much sense to you, but if you've been coming a while, this will probably be helpful. Um, I asked you to pray um, for Vince Clark, myself, Jim Ellis, and Sean Myers as we spent about two days up north just praying and um, talking. I just want to say thank you. Um, Thank you for praying. I know many of you in this room were praying daily, um, almost hourly for our time, and it was extremely encouraging um, to come down together that time. My job sends me all around the world, and so I fly probably uh, my calendar last year. I was gone about 100 days out of state, so I'm on an airplane all the time. And one of the things that's really hard about being on an airplane, one of the things that's really annoying, well, the first thing that's really annoying is when somebody puts their seat behind, like backs their seat up into your knees. Like, I don't mind the backup, but just gently, like, just give a look, like, instead of just, you know what I'm saying? Like, but whatever is annoying, right? Like, that's what really bothers me. But when you're trying to go somewhere, and then the captain gets on, okay, and then the stewardesses are trying to communicate, well, something's happening where they need to not land immediately, right? There's some kind of holding pattern that you get involved in. And me, as a passenger of that flight, I have the opportunity at that moment, I can say, because, man, they're, they're blocking me from getting where I want to go. Right? And that's annoying and that's really hard and that's frustrating. And I don't have all the details either. All I have is we're, we're in this holding pattern. It's not safe for us to land. And so I have to trust the pilot. Right? And the pilot is actually trusting the crew member or the other people. They're, they're doing their best job to guess to get the plane to land safely. Because his job is to care for the passengers on the flight. Right? So the last couple of months, we've been in a bit of a holding pattern as a church. And it's been hard and it's been frustrating. And you guys have been so great in praying for us and trusting us and moving forward. And I just want to give you some hope and encouragement that like we're starting to see the clearing. Um, and there's, there's, there's massive hope. So take that for what it is. I just, again, I just, I'm really thankful you guys have been patient with us and have been praying for us uh, as elders It's been really, really encouraging for us as we try to do our best to navigate what God is calling us to do 
in certain moments. So, with that said, let's open up your Bibles. If you don't already have a copy of the Scriptures, either on your phone or a hard copy, there's Bibles out in uh, the lobby that you can always grab. Please bring your Bible when you come to church. Um, Because we're going to teach the Bible this morning, I have the um, privilege of only having seven verses, right? So next week, it's like three chapters, and um, we won't be able to walk through the text verse by verse exactly like that. Otherwise, we'd be in here for five hours. But because I only have seven verses, we can really go at it. So open up your Bible to Acts chapter 6 if it's not already open. And anytime, anytime, anytime you read, study the Bible or anything, you need to have context. Right? Context is massively important in any type of language. What you say, your sentences, your paragraphs, it all depends on where it sits in the context of what you're trying to communicate. Right? Like say, say it's 1995 and we're here in Phoenix and you and I have a discussion, we have a dialogue, and I say the word 9-11 in 1995. And you're probably going to go, I don't, I don't know what that means, it doesn't make any sense. Well, fast forward 10 years Ahead, say we're in New York City, and I say in 2005, and I say the words 9-11 has totally different weight to it because of the context of what I'm saying. You tracking with me? So anytime you read the Bible, you need to look at context. You need to look at literary context, historical context, redemptive context. You need to come with those lenses of what is the context of what this passage is saying. And so I just want to remind us briefly, we've been covering the book of Acts since the beginning of the year, and we're going to be in it till the fall, of the literary context of the book of Acts to help shape and understand these seven verses. Because the Bible is, it's 66 books, right? Jammed up into one massive story. And it has all types of literary context. You have poetry, you have the law, you have narrative, you have the letters or the epistles. Those all read very differently. And one of the other um, historical narratives, that's what Acts sits in. It's a historical narrative. Another historical narrative that we studied about a year ago, if you've been with us for a while, is the book of Judges. We looked at the book of Judges, and almost every time somebody stood up on the stage and began to unpack the scriptures, they talked about the key passage in Judges. It's the last verse of the book of Judges, 21, chapter 21, verse 25. You guys remember what it was about? Right at the time, it says, at the time, there was no king in the land, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Right, the reason we kept bringing that up is because what a narrative does, a historical narrative, it doesn't tell you the point, right? Like the epistles, the the book of Romans is a letter that Paul writes to the church, and he's telling us the point. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. It's telling you what to do. A narrative doesn't do that. A narrative points to the truth. It lets you step into the scene and watch and then go, okay, that makes sense or that doesn't make sense, right? When we looked at the book of Judges and it said, listen, everybody, there was no king in the land. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And then that is the hook that all those stories hang from, right? Samson, Gideon are all through the lens of like, look at what happens to people when there's no king and they do whatever's right in their own eyes. There's this tragic cycle It's not good, right? So when we look at the book of Acts, we need to be reminded of the key verse. And it's been referenced almost every time, even in the last three times. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the hook that all these stories will hang on. We have to keep coming back to this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this. Jesus is talking to his followers. He says, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So when we look at this narrative, and we step into these seven verses, when we look at this scene of what's happening in the early church, we have to ask ourselves, to remind ourselves, okay, what does this have to do? What do these seven verses have to do with receiving power? From God to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That should frame how we're looking at this narrative. So, open your Bible. And, and, and again, I've said that multiple times. I'm, I'm going to keep saying that. That's always good to open your Bible. Um, we're going to look at three things in these seven verses. We're going to look at a problem. We're going to look at a response. And we're going to look at a result. Problem, a response, and a result. And this problem is kind of a two-pronged problem, this first problem. So let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. Read it with me. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Stop. What's happening in that first verse? There's some type of issue. How does this problem surface itself. We see it in the very beginning of that verse. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. So the reason there was this problem, that it became evident, was because the church was exploding. Right? So just give it some context. Like we've been um, meeting on Sundays for two years as a church, Redemption Peoria has. We started with about 60 people in a community, and then we started meeting on Sundays. And now we go from about 500 to 600 people, including kids, in the building on a Sunday between the two services. Right? In American church, like right now where we're at, that, that's grown pretty quickly compared to church planting of how quickly we've grown. These followers of Jesus that spent 40 days with him after he's resurrected, there was 120 of them. They're gathered in this room After he leaves, the Spirit comes upon him in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches this sermon, and it says 3,000 were added daily. Or 3,000 were added that day. And then you continue on the, the chapter, and it says every day more people were coming. More people were coming. They were so attracted to what Jesus was doing, what the Spirit was doing, right? So imagine 3,000 people plus in one day. And so there's a massive shift in growth And not only growth in size, but also in culture. Because these are people from all around the region. And so that's where this first problem began. And we see it in Acts chapter 4, or Acts chapter 2, verse 4, what this looks like after um, he preaches a sermon, Peter preaches a sermon, people come together, and then look at what it says. They devoted themselves to prayer. I'm sorry, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, 42, they devoted themselves to prayer, the apostles teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came among every soul, and many wonders and signs have been done through the apostles. And then 44, listen to this. And those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, pro- the proceeds to all as any had need. So imagine this. Put yourself in the shoes here of this story. Let's pretend that all of us, every single person in here and first service, this week we drain our bank accounts. Every single penny. Everything we've ever collected money-wise, we're going we're gonna to take it all out and we're going to put it on stage next week. Everybody's going to bring all their stuff, they're going to put it on stage, and then we're going to divvy it out. 
right? Some of the Grand Canyon students were like, yes, I'm down with that, right? I'll bring my $12 and put it on the stage, and that's great. And we'll all, Debbie, we'll all share together, right? And some of you other seasoned friends that have been saving for retirement, you've been diligent with your money not to spend it but save it, you're going like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, we're going to bring all our stuff to the middle and then just divvy, like, I'm not sure I'm okay with that. Right, so imagine that happens. Not only that, but we add a thousand people that don't speak our language. Put it all in the middle. Not only that, but we add another thousand people that none of us, not, none of them look like us. Their skin color is different. We put it in the middle, and then we start divvying it up. Do you think there might be some issues? Right? Yes, because we 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 care about our own stuff. We get self. Per, uh, protected of our own things, and we get fear. We go, well, that's not, that doesn't seem fair. And that's what's happening to this group called the Hellenists that we see in verse 1. There was a complaint or a murmuring by this group. Now, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, let's just unpack that for a second. The Hellenists were people that were Jewish in faith, but Greek in race. Okay? So they spoke Greek, they didn't speak Aramaic like the Jews, and they, their skin looked different. Now the Hebrews were Jewish of faith and Jewish of race. They lived in Jerusalem, they were the people that had been God's people, and when Jesus comes on the scene, they convert and they're now Christians. But the Hellenists are Christians too, right? We saw it in Acts chapter 2. He changes all these different languages and races to come together as a church for one body. So the problem becomes the Hellenists are like, whether they live further away from the temple, which is a possibility, like um, the Hebrews are here and, and they live in Jerusalem. So when the daily distribution of food is given out to the widows, they're easily there. Maybe a, a Hellenist widow had to walk further, and by the time she got there, the, the food was gone. We don't know all the details, but we know that it's an issue. There's injustice happening in this text. And it's interesting, the word Hebrews here, it, it only in verse 1, it only appears two other times in your New Testament. Because usually it's, Israel or God's people, but this word Hebrews, Paul uses it only two other times in the new, all of the New Testament. He says, listen, and he's kind of using it like, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. It's, it's got this arrogance to it, saying like, listen, I'm, I'm, because of my birthright and, and where I live, I, I belong more than you. And, and Paul is saying the opposite of that, but he's using it. But that's the only other time it's used. So it has this kind of weightiness of like superiority. And that's an issue. Right? And the daily distribution, just to give you context for that, God um, puts these laws in place in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, Deuteronomy chapter 24, even in the New Testament, you see it in James chapter 1, verse 27. Listen, take care of the widows. Because in that culture, a woman's identity, her well-being was attached to a man. So if her husband dies, she doesn't have any sons, there's no other... She doesn't have any food. So God institutes this way to provide and take care of the people that are most marginalized in the culture. And men and women, the God of the Bible always cares for the marginalized. He always takes care of the people that get overlooked. And he says, listen, you're to imitate me. You're to be my people. I want you to care for the marginalized as well. You're called to do that. 
And so there's this issue where the Hellenists are saying, man, this is just, it's not fair. We're not, our, our widows are not getting taken care of. The Hebrew widows are taken taken care of. And they bring this complaint to the apostles. So that's one part of the problem. The other potential part of the problem is this. In verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. The second potential part of the problem in this passage is that the apostles could have been pulled away from the thing that God called them to do in the mission. And it, it seems funny as you read the text, you think when you just first read it at first glance, you're like, okay, they, they're saying, listen, we, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't neglect the preaching of the, of the word to, to wait on tables. And you're thinking, man, is this some kind of hierarchy? Like, oh, you're better than me? You can't serve? With, like, wasn't Jesus the ultimate servant? Didn't he wash your feet? Uh, shouldn't you be, have a servant heart? And that's not what's happening here in the text with the apostles, as you'll see in just a minute. Right, because even Jesus was clear in his calling. Right, you see it all through the Gospels. One specific instance in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus goes, he goes to be away with the Father. He's in solitude. He's listening to his Father. He comes down. The disciples are freaking out. They're like, listen, everybody's looking for you. We need to go and heal these people. You know what Jesus says? We're going this way. I understand there's, no, we're going this way. I just heard from my father, this is the mission, we're going this way. And so it's not a, a, a matter of lack of compassion on the leaders and the apostles. It's a matter of clarity in their calling. And it's so clear even that they, they don't just ignore the problem, but they engage it. But they are clear. They're not going to be not preaching God's word. And we see it even in the chapters before, chapter 4 and chapter 5. The religious leaders are like, listen, you need to stop talking about Jesus. And they say, no, we will not stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. We are clear in our mission. And so how do they solve the problem? If that's the problem, what's the response to the problem? Let's look at it in verses 3 and 4. Says this, therefore, it's what the apostles say to the church. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. I don't know. He has really good repute. I don't know why it says it like that. It's reputation. We should maybe start saying that. He's really good repute. Okay, I'm that's, sorry. It's a bad joke. Okay, um, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Verse four. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. What's happening in their response is really fascinating to me um, as a leader because they don't do two things when a complaint comes to them. They don't defend it. They don't defend themselves. And they don't ignore the problem. They don't defend or they don't ignore. And if you're a leader, well, I was going to say, if you're a leader, and let me just stop there because you might have this idea of what a leader is, like a CEO or a president. You might think, um, oh, I'm not a leader. A leader at its basic definition is anybody that influences other people. Anybody that has influence of other people. And God calls us all to be leaders, to be witnesses, to influence other people for his kingdom. So don't think you're not a leader. 
I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. Moms, if you don't think you're a leader and have influence on that baby on your hip all the time, 24 hours a day, you have massive influence. You are a leader. So for all leaders in this room, which I would argue we are, how do we deal with complaining and grumbling? Think about that, who you have influence over. How do you metabolize disappointment in your leadership? And for me, just my natural default, because my heart is sinful in my flesh, when a problem gets brought to me as a leader, typically I want to defend my reason. I want to, def- like, man, they just don't know. Or they're, like, they, they, don't, they don't get it. Like, I want to start defending my answer, or I will just ignore it. I'll just pretend I didn't hear that problem. It's just easier just to, ah, just, uh. the apostles don't do either. They don't defend themselves and the the issue. They they recognize this is injustice and we need to deal with it. They don't defend it and they don't ignore it. They engage it. They engage the problem. And look at the qualifications of how they engage the problem. This is fascinating to me, again, in verse 3 and 4. First of all, they bring the whole church together. They say, listen, this isn't just about us as leaders. This is about all of us collectively. Okay? They begin to empower people um, that, that are following them. They say, listen, we're going to all get together, and you're going to pick seven men. What are the requirements for the seven men? Look at it. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Right? And this idea of full of the Spirit, it's this anytime you see that, I always go back to what Paul says when he, and he talks in Ephesians 5, and he's talking about, listen, don't get drunk with wine. For that's debauchery. You can get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit, right? Because when you're drunk, the wine is controlling you. It's evident to everybody, right? But be filled with the Spirit. And so these are men that when you look at their life, they're in love with Jesus. Man, they're they're controlled by God's Spirit and how they love people and interact with other people. So they have to have good reputation. They have to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And when I look at that list, and as I think um, as a leader, how I uh, influence other people that, that I need to give leadership away and empower leadership away, it's interesting to me that all of those things are character issues. They're not skill issues, they're character issues. When you look to empower other people, character needs to be the first thing you look at. Josh Miles, who leads our worship team up here, if somebody came up to him, let's, let's, let's pretend, let's pretend Adele starts coming to church here. You know the singer Adele, who's unbelievable? Let's say Adele starts coming to church here, and she walks up after one of the services, and she engages in a conversation with Josh, and she says, Josh, I would, she's British, I can't do a British accent, I would love to sing on the stage, and it's really bad, um, and Josh, you know what Josh's first question is going to be to Adele? His first question is probably going to be like, why are you here? Like, why are you living in Peoria? It doesn't make any, why are you here every week? But the other question, the first question he's going to ask, he's going to say, are you in a redemption community? And the reason he's going to say that, not because we're pharisaical about everybody needs to be in a community, but because in community, character gets revealed. 
right? Character gets revealed when you do life together with other people. And character is the primary filter of any role of a leader. The other thing that's interesting to me is we continue, verse 5 and 6. Character is the primary filter as they look to empower these leaders. But look at what else is important. Verse 5. And what they said, please the whole gathering. Which it's clear it's God, because in leadership that never happens. You can't please everybody. So everybody's happy, right? And verse 5. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, a procurious and Nicantor and Taman, I, don't, I can't read these dudes' names. There was a proselyte from Antioch, right? I don't read them because I don't speak Greek. Here's what I mean by that. All these names, right? There's an argument of the Hellenists against the... These are all Hellenist names. Do you get that? Like, so character is primary, but it doesn't mean you swing all the way over here and character is the only thing important in leadership. You also do need skills and competency, right? Wouldn't it make sense for the people to say, listen, these um, widows, these Hellenist widows, like, wouldn't it be good to have somebody that actually speaks their language? Wouldn't it be good to actually have somebody that knows their needs and can engage with them? So when empowering leaders, you don't swing all the way over here and say, well, it's only about their character and skill doesn't matter at all, right? Because there's plenty of people in this room that have great character. They have good reputations, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. And if they engage with Josh and ask to come sing and they start singing and they're terrible, it's not good for any of us, Right? So this is really interesting to me that the way they respond to this complaint, this murmuring, is that they gather the church together, they empower those church leaders to choose seven, and those seven have to do with their character, but it also has to do with their skill. And then what's the response? Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, the way the apostles handled this problem was done very well. And the result of that is people came to the faith. And it's really interesting, that last part, right? Many priests became obedient to the faith. I read that. I was like, why is that in there? What does that mean? And the religious leaders at the time, the Jewish people that weren't yet Christians, there were thousands of priests in Jerusalem. And one of the priests' duty was to actually care for the widows. So these Jewish priests started seeing what was happening over in this thing called the church. And they started to see, look at how they're taking care of everybody. It's not regardless of their race or, or anything else, but they're, they're, they're providing for everybody. That's kind of attractive. And many priests came to faith, obedient to faith in Jesus. Just to kind of close, um, as I think about these guys, these men, these leaders, the apostles, right? We're getting one snapshot of their view. And really, um, the list of men that I tried to read, um, only two of them show up the rest of the story. Stephen shows up next week, and then Philip, and a couple weeks later. And again, think through at the lens of Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Do you know where Philip goes and plants a church, Samaria. 
right? God is continually unfolding his plan so that everybody knows the name of Jesus. It's not based on your race, your religion, um, what you do or what you don't do, your economic status. Everybody has an opportunity to know Jesus. And when you look at these men, you look in the Gospels, which is, um, you know, Acts is the, the sequel to Luke's Gospel, and you look at them just maybe two months ago, right? Jesus spends 40 days with them. They have another 10 days till Pentecost. So maybe we're at day 60. I don't know. Maybe we're at day 70. But even a couple of months ago, you look at the end of Luke, and these dudes are a hot mess. They can't lead anybody. And it's clear, like, you look, there's this argument that breaks out between these brothers, and their mom goes to Jesus and says, listen, I want to know if if one of my sons can sit at your right or left hand. They're totally jockeying for position. They have this aura of self-preservation, of taking care of themselves. They didn't have a conviction in their calling. They weren't clear in their conviction, right? You see it at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Peter gets approached by these people. Aren't you you the guy? You're the guy that follows Jesus. I'm not, no, I'm not, that's not me. I'm not that guy. No, 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 you're the guy. And then this little, this girl says, you're the man. And he says, no, and he runs away. He's not clear in his convictions as a leader. They don't seem to know how to handle the, and deal with problems that come at them. You think of the feeding of the 5,000. And, and one disciple says, well, I don't, we're not going to, he starts defending. We can't get any food. I don't know. And the one is probably ignoring They don't seem to have a handle on that. The text doesn't show us anywhere in the Gospels that they seem to have an understanding of how to empower others. They are a mess in the Gospels. And then a couple months later, we see how they're operating in Luke, or in Acts chapter 6. How did they change? Like, what was different about them just a couple months later? Why are they all of a sudden these amazing leaders? The answer is because they're empowered by God's spirit. We saw in Acts chapter 2, they're not operating in their own power, but they have a different power source now because of Jesus. And it's the same spirit that led the ultimate leader, Jesus. Jesus, who didn't have self-preservation at the center of his soul, but in Philippians chapter 2, he pours himself out for others. Jesus, who fully understood the conviction of his calling, even when he knew it was going to lead to his death. He's praying in the garden. He's saying, I don't want to go to the cross, but I'm going to be obedient regardless. And Jesus, who doesn't ignore the problem or defend the problem of sin, he could have easily said, listen, they ate the fruit. I'm not going down there. They're they're responsible. Or he could have ignored the problem of sin, but instead he engages the problem of sin, comes, lives a sinful life, dies on a cross, and raises from the dead. And Jesus, who knows how to empower people for the mission, by sending his spirit and establishing his church to be responsible to reconstruct shalom, this beauty and perfection. The only reason these men were able to respond well is because what Jesus has done on the cross for them and sending his spirit to them. Man, that should be encouraging for us. 
as influencers, as leaders, because we're all influencers and leaders. And sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes we get it right. But we have the opportunity to listen to what the Spirit is telling us to do, which these men did, and they handled it rightly. Imagine if they didn't have the Spirit. Imagine if Jesus hadn't come. It'd be like the end of the Gospels. It'd be a train wreck. But that's not the case. They trust Jesus. They listen to the Spirit. And that's the opportunity for us. We can trust Jesus. We can listen to the Spirit if you're in Him. And it'll change the way we lead. The apostles saw, understood, and were empowered to be leaders like Jesus. May we be men and women that surrender to that power and are witnesses to every area of life. Let me pray. Father, thanks that you sent your son so it was even possible to know you. And thanks that you sent your spirit to continually remind us, to empower us, to counsel us, to direct us in where we need to go. We need continually... We need to be continually reminded of that. I pray that we would not lead out of a sense of insecurity and defend ourselves or ignore problems, but God, we would engage in with the power of your spirit and because of what you've done on the cross. Thanks for that reminder this morning. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.